1: Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a program dedicated to raising awareness of issues concerning animals. This includes advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, and importantly, appreciation. The show is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne on 855 AM. And thanks to um, Sally on the previous show, uh, out of the pan, I'm not sure whether Sally is actually back yet. I should I should listen in and make sure um, to check. Uh, but I'm sure that Sally's show, whether it was a re- record or a new show, was fantastic anyway. And you can catch Sally on, um, on 3CR every Sunday at 12 p.m. So definitely, definitely check that out. That's out of the pan. Um, each week on Sunday. And thanks for tuning in for um, Freedom of Species. We've got a, a really great guest today. And I think um, a guest who has a lot of interesting things to say for, um, about a, an animal that we, I think most of us would certainly um, appreciate and maybe have a very close relationship with. And th- today we're talking with uh, Dr. Mia Cobb. Mia Cobb is, um, Dr. Mia Cobb is a, uh, a researcher who does research all things dogs? So, a <laughs> um, does lots and lots of research on dogs and, and the social, um, how dogs are understood in our society, um, and particularly around dogs that we use for um, certain purposes uh, called working dogs sometimes. Um, and yeah, so thanks for joining us today, Mia.
0: It's an absolute pleasure, Adam. Thank you for having me.
1: Okay, so, Mia, I just wanted to start with tell us, tell us like. Why dogs?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. And it's one that probably a lot of people didn't think about for a while. It's almost like because dogs were so close to us and so part of the landscape of our lives that we forgot to study them from a, a scientific perspective. Um, I mean, there are definitely examples of, of people like Darwin and uh, Conrad Lorenz as well, um, both observing their dogs and sort of commenting on their behaviour. Um But my area of interest lies in the science of animal welfare. So looking at the animal experience and how they are coping in their environments. And um, I guess this has led me to look at dogs and and I guess how I got here looks easy when you look back with hindsight. Um, But along the way, it didn't always feel like it was making sense. But I, I did an undergraduate degree in science. Uh, and majored in animal behaviour and ecology. And I was really interested in animal behaviour. And uh, over time, I guess at that stage, this is going back quite a while now into the uh, mid-90s. And at that stage, it was all wildlife behaviour and ecology mostly. Mm. There wasn't a lot of research happening in the domestic animal space outside of agriculture. Uh, and I finished my degree, I did an honours year chasing birds around Melbourne, and then I went and travelled overseas. Both my parents came from outside of Australia, so it was uh, important to me to go and, and sort of do some exploring and discover my roots, as you will. And uh, when I came back, I had a massive credit card debt, and I needed a job. <laughs> and the job that I got was working as an animal attendant at RSPCA, mm. uh, one of the largest shelters in Melbourne. And that was a really frontline experience, I guess, in the ways that we fail animals in a lot of ways. A lot of, you know, seeing where relationships had broken down between people and their companion animals or where animals were being harmed through cruelty or mm. surrendered because they were no longer able to be uh, cared for. Um, and that really put a fire in my belly for um, doing more to help the welfare of animals. So trying to help them lead better lives. And that led me to, uh, I guess, return to study. Um, I shifted employment so that I was managing the training kennels and vet clinic at Guide Dogs Victoria. And uh, while I was there, I could see that we had young dogs that were getting stressed living in the kennels environment. And I wanted to know more about how we could reduce that stress um, and, and possibly help them be more successful in, in their role as graduating as guide dogs mm. and that, yeah, I guess from prompted me to go back to do a PhD, which I did part time for a very long time around work and uh, becoming a parent as well. And yeah, I, I basically explored the, the stress and welfare experience of young dogs returning from being with volunteer puppy raisers in a home environment into the kennel over their first few weeks. And then, looking at whether they went on to become successful uh, operational guide dogs. So, qualifying mm. and, and going out working as a, a, um, a aid to someone with a visual impairment, um, helping them lead a more independent life.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that... <laughs> that so I guess back- the
0: combination of my education and my yep. work experience and my interest all led me, kept pointing me back to dogs And over time, I I was given other opportunities to work on government projects and um, consulting to industry groups as well. Uh, So areas like greyhound racing as well, looking at how we could identify opportunities to improve the welfare of dogs in those situations. And while some of those contexts have been confronting, I guess, um, I kind of feel like if there's an opportunity to help industries improve the welfare of their animals, then I, I need to, to do what I can to assist
1: yeah yeah there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there I think <laughs> and there's a there's a there's a few um, uh, questions that I, I sort of want to hold for a bit later in the program when we've, when we've sort of fleshed out some of the um, some of your work and what you're doing in this space some of the some of the more crunchy questions around working animals and and whatnot but one point that I want to get your reflection on is um, you sort of mentioned that, you know, back in the 90s when you were doing your uh, previous, in your previous life in in ecology and behaviour um, as an undergrad, you, you said that there was plenty on wildlife behaviour and wildlife sort of welfare, I suppose. Um, and then there was stuff on farmed animals, but not much on, on dogs or companion animals. And it struck me that um, even the work that was was done and is done on, on farmed animals, for instance, is not necessarily for the welfare of those animals. It's, for, it's, it's ensuring that their welfare is good for their pro- productivity. Do you wanna reflect on that? It's, the, it's for the benefit of humans. And has that changed at all, do you think, with dogs in particular, um, where we are more concerned? Are we, are we still just concerned about their welfare for our own benefits or for their benefits in themselves?
0: Such a good question, Adam, and one that I have reviewed, I guess, my, my feelings towards this over time, and, and I think it's really important to acknowledge that my feelings have changed over time. Um, How have perhaps, they changed?
1: Can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, for sure. I guess, um, I mean, even like reflecting on myself as, as someone who lives with dogs, what I saw as being a good relationship with my dog 20 years ago is not the same as how i see it now Mm. Um, so by that i mean you know i thought to be a good dog owner and and i'm using those words quite particularly Mm. um, i needed to invest in the training of my dog and have an obedient dog i needed to control my dog responsibly which meant you know de-sexing it keeping it on a collar and lead and and doing you know, making sure that when I said sit, it sat and, and all those kind of things. Whereas now I give my dog a lot more autonomy mm-hmm. in its life. I consider that I live with my dog. I don't own my dog. Mm-hmm. Um, he does not wear a collar when we're at home and together. Um, I do, do still have him on a lead for safety when he erodes and things like that because I'm, I'm cautious and I've seen a lot of accidents, I guess, yep. working in a vet clinic environment. Um, but I, I review it differently and I'm raising my children to look at the way we interact with our animal companions at home differently too. And I teach them about um, seeking consent of the animal to interact with them and, and mm. stopping when they're patting them and waiting and seeing how the animal responds. And if it wants to walk away, then we let them walk away. We don't um, pursue them and we don't force them. Mm. Um, so quite, I don't know, I, I still do go through the motions of of, um, engaging with my dog in training activities, but he has much more choice than I probably afforded the animals 20 years ago. Um, And if he's not in the mood, then that's fine. And I think I'm probably a better animal trainer too, after 20 years of learning about animal behavior and and learning psychology as well. So I can probably make it a much more fun activity. Um, But I would be far more careful about using methods that might be considered coercive or um, definitely, you know, I've never been a big fan of aversive training techniques, but um, yeah, just a very different lens, I guess, in how I reflect on that relationship in our home.
1: Yeah, and Uh, do you you think that that's changed more broadly in society as well?
0: I think it is, and I try and put my objective scientists hat on, I guess, when I look at this, because it's nice to think everyone's changing when you're changing. And I don't know that that's always true. Mm. Um, Certainly in my work, I encounter a wide range of perspectives on how people perceive dogs. And for some people, it's their best friend. Um, For some people, it's a tool that they use to get a job done. And they really don't reflect on that more than they would a hammer or a motorbike. Um, And for some people, it's, you know, it's their key to independence. And it's... (laughs) probably a, a relationship on a, a level that I haven't experienced and I can't fully appreciate. Mm. Um, so, I mean, and for other people, it's economic relationship. You know, it's about profit and um, it's employment and, and those kind of things as well. So part of my work, working with lots of different industry groups and individuals is trying to find the messaging that will um, I guess, be successful in effecting change that results in animals leading better quality of, of life. Um, and sometimes that's an economic argument and sometimes it's a performance argument and sometimes it's just explaining that, you know, over the last 30 years we've learned so much more about animals and um, the fact that they are sentient and they have the capacity to feel pain and suffer and that they can enjoy positive emotions and, you know, because they can do all that, then we have an obligation to them. Um, because they have, you know, inherent worth in themselves to offer them a life that, that gives them good experiences. And that animal welfare itself is not now just about, um, I guess, reducing harm or preventing negative experiences, but also about promoting positive ones.
1: Mm, yeah, that's a great um, note to leave on for a song. And we're actually, we're about to hear um, the dog song, Walking My Dog by Nellie McKay. Here it is.
2: I'm just a-walking my dog, singing my song, strolling along. It's just me and my dog, catching some sun. We can't go wrong. My love is lonely and blue. Yeah, I was sad as a sailor I was an angry one too Then there was you appeared When I was entangled with youth and fear And nerves jangle jangled vermouth and beer Were getting me mangled up But then I looked in your eyes And I was no more a failure You looked so wacky and wise and I said, Lord, I'm happy because I'm just a-walking my dog, singing my song, strolling the oh, my It's just me and my dog, catching some sun, we can't go wrong. Cause I don't care about your hate and your doubt, and I don't care what the politicians found. If you need a companion, just just score by the pound, and find yourself a hound, and make that dog get proud. Cause that's what it's all about My love was tragic and sad I was the archetypal loser I was a pageant gone bad Then there was you on time wagging your tail in the cutest mime And you was in jail, I said, wolf be mine And you gave away the men I was no longer alone And I was no more a boozer We'll make the happiest home And I said, Lord, I'm happy Cause I'm just walking my dog, singing my song. About your hate and your doubt, and I don't care what the politicians spout. If you need a companion, why don't you go out by the pound and find yourself a hound and make that dog get proud? Because that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about.
3: Hi, my name's Travis from Larakea Country, and I'm here to talk about the Reading Writing Hotline. It's a service that helps adults who can't read and write as well as they'd like to. The number is 1300 655 06. Give them a call if you know somebody who needs help with reading and writing. It's never too late to learn, and it's easier than you think. 1300 655 06. 1300 6506, oh the reading writing hotline. A 3CR supporter.
0: G'day, I'm Janine and I'm a koala researcher. Koalas have had a tough year. And so have we. We need some good news and they need some attention. The 3rd of May is Wild Koala Day. Share a picture of a koala on your social media, wear a gum leaf on your shirt, and tag Wild Koala Day. Go to wildkoaladay.com.au for more ideas of how you can help koalas from home.
2: A 3CR supporter.
1: And thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio, Radical Radio. Um, and. We're here with Dr Mia Cobb, who is a welfare scientist specialising in dog welfare, canine welfare. Um, and Mia's been sort of talking about, their or has shared really openly, their um, changed experience with dogs and how they have personally um, changed their, the way that they uh, work and relate to dogs over the last sort of 20 years, which has been fascinating to hear, Mia. It's really actually quite, um, lovely to hear. Um, and I just wanted to, now, now that you've gone through this really sort of um, long process of, of interacting with dogs and you've developed a, uh, a working relationship or a working identity around dogs, now you've, you've actually just finished a PhD doing, researching the welfare of um, dogs in our society and how human perceptions um, or humans perceive dogs and Dog welfare, and I wanted to see. I wanted to get you to sort of dig into some of the recent research you've published in um, animal welfare. Uh, the the publication called "Not All Dogs Are Equal: Perception of Canine Welfare Varies with Context." Do so you just want to give us um, a bit of background about what that research was trying to do? What you've found through that research? Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, I'd love to. Um... A new scientist is very excited when someone wants to talk about their science. (laughs) Um, So I guess I was really interested in how people perceive the welfare of dogs in different situations, because the biology of the animal is essentially the same. So they're all dogs doing, you know, being dogs. Um, And yet when we ask people, how would you rate the welfare from being, you know, extremely low to extremely high of, say, a guide dog? compared to their own pet dog, compared to, let's say, a racing greyhound, compared to perhaps something like a a wild dog, Mm -hmm. um, people have very different um, perceptions of where the welfare of those dogs lies on a continuum. So uh, I guess in my role working in a guide dog kennel facility, I realised that the way I perceive the welfare of dogs may not be the same... As the average person in the street and i was curious to to find out what their perception might be mm. um so remembering that i went into this concerned about the welfare of dogs in the working dog kennels mm. and wanting to improve their quality of life and so basically i asked this question to over two thousand uh, strangers on the internet and they um, volunteered to do an anonymous survey where they went through and they rated the welfare of dogs across
1: 18 different categories. Can you, can you just explain what you mean by the welfare of dogs? What does that actually mean?
0: Yeah, well, that's a really good question. And I didn't want to define it too much because mm-hmm. I wanted people to tell me their perceptions. And I didn't want to lead them too much in thinking about that because most people just have a gut response, you know, Hat. and so we, we basically just said it referred to their quality of life.
1: Okay, yeah, um, so it's not, it's not, it's not.
0: define ab- it further than that.
1: Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. so it's not, a, it's not about um, the welfare that you expect they should receive, it's the welfare you think that they're, they're experiencing. Yeah,
0: what do you yeah. think the quality of life is for dogs yeah. living in this context, basically? Yeah, great, Yeah. Yeah, and so what we saw was that, uh, I guess, the the sort of average point, I guess, was roughly around the point of farm dogs and other people's pet dogs. So we asked people who were dog owners to not only rate the welfare of their own dog, but also to give a rating for the welfare of the average pet dog. Um, And so that was sort of around the middle. And and the, the dogs perceived to have the worst welfare. We put in fighting dogs, obviously, as a pretty clear lowest Standard yeah. because we wanted to measure, um, I guess, make sure people weren't just clicking through the survey and not giving us reasonable responses. Mm. Um, so that was perceived as the lowest welfare, uh, and then we had stray and street dogs, and feral and wild dogs just above uh, below racing greyhounds. Mm-hmm. And at the top end, the the dogs that were perceived to have the the higher welfare were all those kind of more professionalised working dog roles. Yeah. So. Uh, Your police and drug detection dogs, your assistance and service dogs, search and rescue and guide dogs. Mm. But perhaps most surprisingly, or maybe not, the dogs that were perceived to have the highest welfare of all were people's own dogs. Of course, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it could just be that people who are motivated to complete a 15-minute online survey about the welfare of dogs are really engaged, excellent um, caretakers for the dogs living in their homes. Uh, But it could also suggest, given that that people consistently rated that higher than the average pet dog, and people who didn't have a dog rated the average pet dog the same, it could be that what we're seeing is what we call a positive illusory bias or a halo effect, where people perceive themselves as being better at something than they actually are. And that's an effect that we see in things like assessing our own driving skills, or our parenting skills. But it's the first time it's kind of been hinted at within this area of taking care of animals. And it's got some quite big implications Mm. um, in terms of looking out for the welfare of animals in both uh, our homes, but also in uh, animal-reliant industries as well. Because if we think we're taking better care of them than we actually are, then we're maybe not recognising opportunities for improvement, or where welfare is being compromised.
1: Yeah, and it sort of it's, it feeds into you know this is a this is a um, animal animal show, and we're like we talk a lot about vegan issues and vegan ethics and things like that. It sort of feeds into that idea, I think, um, of a cognitive dissonance around our behaviour and our Beliefs about ourselves, so it's sort of like in the same way that many people get um, push push back on ideas of farmed animals having having um, consciousness and and theory of mind and all that sort of jazz. They sort of try to deny that sort of stuff because of cognitive dissonance, because their their behaviour um, of eating animals doesn't match up with with what they. Um, what they feel they, their, their positive image of themselves. I wonder if there's also something there happening where people don't want to be like, don't want to think of themselves as bad or giving their dogs a bad experience. So oh, they for are sure.
0: I mean, yeah. we've definitely seen um, historical instances of, of that kind of cognitive dissonance in relating to dogs as well. So when tail docking was phased out uh, mm. in the state of Victoria in Australia, Going back, oh, I'm trying to think now. It's probably 15-ish years ago, or maybe you, it's only 10. Can you explain um, what
1: tail docking is? It it's might not yeah, be for international so, guests and stuff. yet. Yeah.
0: For sure. Um, so there was a practice, and there still is in some countries around the world, where it's normal to chop the tail of a dog to a far shorter than normal length, purely for aesthetic reasons. So there's no functional or health benefit mm. to doing it. Um, it's just that people decided they liked the look of a dog with a shorter tail.
1: And so what they tend
0: to do when puppies are in their first week of life is they either band them or surgically chop them um, generally with minimal or no pain relief um, because that's what the breed standard calls for. And the mm. breed standard is basically an outline of how the dog should look. So it's all purely based on aesthetics, not based on health or welfare.
1: Are there other. There's, there's also... Um- Some dogs get ears pinned or something?
0: Yeah, yeah, ears get um, cropped, it's called, which is the Mm. same thing. So the dogs that have floppy ears, so um, for example, in the United States, it's very common to see Dobermans with their ears cropped and Great Danes Mm. as well. So they chop off the floppy bit and then post them up. So they tape them with a a hard um, post inside to train the ears, basically, the cartilage to stand erect. Ugh, yuck. Yeah. yeah, and it does look yuck. And you're used to seeing, a normal on one eye, I have a very dear friend who's also a canine scientist, Julie Hett, who lives in New York,
3: and we were at a
0: conference together in Italy, and we were walking between the conference venue and where we were staying, and we walked past a dog, and she's like, what's that? I don't recognise that breed. And it was a Doberman that had his full tail and, and his ears floppy. Oh. <laughs> um, and it was, um, I remember when we first started seeing in Australia Rottweilers and Jack Russells and his dogs that had been docked with their their tails and it took some adjusting to getting used to recognizing those breeds. Mm. Um, But what we saw was that people went to extreme lengths um, when tail docking was made illegal to be able to continue that practice. So even though there was new evidence that suggested, Hey, this is unnecessary. uh, It's possibly detrimental to the dog's ability to communicate with other dogs. um, It's not required for any health purpose. uh, It needs to stop. There were, you know, some breeders taking their dogs out on boats to get outside into international waters, where they were no longer party oh. to the Victorian legislation, to be able to continue the practice of docking, which isn't, you know, I mean that's extreme, surely by anyone's <sighs> measures, just
3: that's to be incredible. able to keep
0: doing something that's so, um, you know, unnecessary. And I guess with the passage of time, now we see more people um, have have accepted the new information and the new requirements and are no longer going to those extremes, but. Certainly, in other countries, it's still um, quite a common practice.
1: Mm. And did did you find anything? So when you were talking about that um, that perception of welfare uh, of welfare of different different breeds, was, or do you know? Are you planning or have you done any research on whether the knowledge of welfare of um, dogs or or what we might expect dogs to experience? Um, whether that has an impact on how people perceive their welfare. So, so for instance, if I, I I think that I probably have a pretty good idea of, um, of what I would hope was a good life for a dog, but I, I would say that my dogs, for instance, um, they, they could have better lives. They, they are in a yard that I, you know, that I'm obliged to keep them within because our society doesn't allow free roaming dogs. Um, When we go down the, down for a walk. They need to be on a lead because that's the local laws. Um, and, you know, there's there's certain things that um, we're not allowed to do, which means that their their lives are restricted or, or more depauperate than they might get from other situations. Yeah. And that's that people... a,
0: it's a couple of really good points off of that, I guess. So one is that um, the way people, the majority of people rated the welfare of dogs surprised me a bit. So, the fact that dogs that, um, you know, like our, our feral or wild dogs that essentially lead a life where they have complete behavioural, environmental, mm. sexual, social freedom, yep. were perceived to have pretty much one of the lowest levels of welfare.
2: Really? Whereas
0: but the dogs living right in the top. most controlled environment, so dogs that may be living their lives full-time in a kennel facility in a working dog role mm. um, and have no or very little... Uh, control over their social or environmental, their sexual sort of decisions, um, were perceived as having the very highest levels of welfare. So I I found that really interesting and that was a bit surprising to me as well. Um, But I have to remember that I've been working in this space now for quite a long time and the way that I look at things isn't the same way that everyone else looks at it. Mm. And I guess the flip side to that is that, you know, I also look at my dog who's, you know, asleep on the couch and think, well, I could be doing more for him to have a great life. Um, But I think there's also probably a level of the Dunning-Kruger effect in play um, in these results that we see. So Dunning-Kruger effect in psychology is where basically people who don't have a lot of information about a topic tend to assess themselves at being excellent at that topic. (laughs) And the more that you learn the more you realize how little you know. And so what you find is, you know, people who are experts have this imposter syndrome where they feel like they don't belong and they don't know anything and they're not doing a good job. Um, And you sort of have to go a little bit further before you actually begin to reconcile that you are an expert in a topic. But it's literally a case of you don't know what you don't know. And so you tend to be overconfident in assessing your own um, knowledge or, or skills on that topic. And, you know, I think that's why we see very confident young people as well, just because they perhaps haven't yet realised what they don't know about things and it's not a criticism, it's just a a thing that we see all over and it's it's actually really funny because (laughs) um, (laughs) you just, you don't know what you don't know and it's not until you get a certain level of uh, education or information or training in an area that you acquire the skill set to be able to accurately assess that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that, like, that you bring up the, that point about the, um, the working dogs being mm. rated at higher welfare than say wild dogs, for instance. And one of the notes I've got here is I wonder whether um, the, the welfare ranking is, is related to what we perceive as the moral status of the instrumental use of that dog. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: I've got some research students that are now trying to unpick that further, that kind Mm. of um, effect that we see and work out why it is. This this first study was very much just to try and work out where people perceive the welfare of working dogs compared to other areas uh, and in relation to each other in different contexts. And now we have to try and work out, well, why did we see that? Also, whether that persists, so we've got some students repeating this study where the data was first collected, you know, close to 10 years ago now, so it'd be really nice to see how those trends may have changed over time. We've learnt more about, you know, the health and welfare impacts of um, extreme morphology on pedigree dogs, so whether their perceived welfare rating has gone down, Um, and we've seen, you know, media exposés showing welfare issues around the greyhound racing industry as well, Um, so I guess what it, what it shows is for um, industries that are reliant on animals is that where their perceived welfare is low, it probably really clearly illustrates where their social licence to operate is at risk. Mm. Um, and, you know, we've seen industries be disrupted in Australia, like the greyhound racing industry and the live export industry, where we have um, metre exposés that show us that industry practices don't align with community expectations. Um, and that social licence, which is what we call that kind of community approval for a practice, is revoked and there's been huge disruptions to the industries or cessation even. And, I mean, l- we can see that in other areas as well, like the phasing out of exotic animals in circuses mm. um, and the way that zoos have kind of redefined themselves as conservation harbours rather than, you know, a nice day's family entertainment. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's something that we see widely around the world and I think we're only going to see more of it in the coming decades. And and that's, I guess, part of my work is trying to tell, um, not tell, communicate to industries that if they want to continue being able to work with animals, they're going to need to be really transparent and able to assure the general community that the welfare of those animals is um, not just okay or not impinged on, but um, really optimised, and that those animals are leading good lives if they want their practices to be sustainable.
1: All right, we need to after this song, we need to really dig into that point because <laughs> that's, something, that's something that uh, my listeners will certainly want to have us hash out a bit. So, um, you've been listening to uh, Dr. Mia Cobb uh, on Freedom of Species. We're just going to go to a song. This is Paper Airplanes by Darren Hanlon.
4: threw his guitar down and started beating his brow No matter how hard he tried he couldn't justify All the wasted time spent inventing words and rhyme As the stars and the planets and the clock did lapse You see, making up songs is for losers I should build something she uses Like a box, or a bed, or cupboards, or shelves Cause songs are made of air, they can't be any use to her Better off trying to catch falling aeroplanes Yeah. When girls said, boy, don't be so stupid Boy, don't be so tough, You're not even right by heart. And although you say your songs are fundamentally air There's also thousands of vibrations that stimulate the ear In such a way that whenever I hear them They always make me smile just as tactile As a box or a bed Of cupboards or shelves So boy now stop you moping You cursing and no hoping And get back in the sand While she was just speaking, Towards his fingers reaching Where lay his guitar His head was swimming in an alphabet Silk letters swirled and words formed in his heart He said I'm gonna build a song for us with four verses and a chorus On real estate your words inspired And there we'll live rent free, sleep on beds of melody And leave the key change with the seasons And so that song he built was hers With a chorus and four verse And she woke to find him finally asleep
5: My name's Chris Breen from the Refugee Action Collective. I've been charged with incitement under the 1958 Crimes Act for helping to organise a safe car convoy protest calling for the release of the refugees at the Mantra Hotel and across Australia because of the risk of COVID-19. Labor MPs Jed Carney and Peter Khalil have called for the release of the refugees in the Mantra Hotel and Jed Carney sent us an audio message supporting the goals of the protest. Twenty-six refugee supporters have been issued fines of $1,652 each, making a total of $43,000 in fines. We'll be challenging the fines and the incitement charge in court, and we need your help. We've got a sign-on statement, a petition, a fundraising campaign for our legal defence, and a public meeting with Craig Foster, Mosford Manus, Julian Burnside, and myself on Monday, the 4th of May at 6:30 p.m. You can go to rack-vic.org or Facebook forward slash rackvic for more information. Your solidarity can make a difference for both civil liberties and the urgent campaign to free the refugees.
2: A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3CR.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3CR.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live.
1: And thanks for tuning in or listening, downloading the podcast, whatever you're doing, however you're listening. Um, you're listening to Freedom of Species. And that song was actually Falling Aeroplanes by Darren Hamlin. I got that run wrong. Uh, that's Falling Aeroplanes. Um, and we've been speaking with Dr. Mia Cobb, a welfare scientist, a, a dog expert, dog researcher. Um, and Mia was just mentioning um, the research that they're doing, sort of, into. Uh, animal welfare. It's particularly with um, with working dogs and and how they're framing the need. If if people want to keep the or industries who are using dogs um, in their. In their industry, want to keep social license to do that. They need to have this. They need to prove that they're able to um, give those dogs good lives and and uh, 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 ensuring the welfare of those animals. What I want to I want to sort of challenge that a little bit, Mia, um, is is it is it possible to have um, to have high welfare for dogs in certain industries if they really are just being used for a means to an end rather than their lives being respected as a a means in themselves?
0: That's a really, really valuable point and and question. And I think probably as annoying as it will be, the answer is we don't have that information um, to be able to answer that from a scientific perspective. I don't think that we have enough um, robust research on the animal experience um, to be able to, to answer that question yet. And I guess that's something that I really advocate for is that um, unfortunately a lot of our research that's looked at the benefits people get from dogs, particularly over the last 20 years, when canine science has really taken off and become a thing um, is tied to human health outcomes. And that's generally as a result of where the funding comes from. Mm -hmm. Um, So researchers wanting to study human animal interactions uh, generally, most able to get funding when their focus is on the benefits to human health, and that's as a result of the funding agencies, um, or if it's in relation to something like border security or biosecurity, so detection mm-hmm. dogs and things like that. And then you're looking more on olfactory capabilities again, rather than the animal experience. And so there's a couple of things that I guess pin on to that. One is that where the canine experience has has been measured, and, and we do that looking at um, behavior and also physiology mm-hmm. um, it's often not done as robustly as the human measures are done so we're then limited in how much we can actually um, provide interpretation of their experience obviously we can't ever really fully understand the animal experience because they are other they're not um, we're not inside their heads we're not We don't have the capabilities to communicate with them. That said, dogs share a lot of similarities um, with our biology in terms of neurochemistry, in terms of anatomy, in terms of uh, social structures and behavior. Mm -hmm. So there's been a kind of little bit of a tipping of the balance where when I was doing my undergraduate study, you couldn't talk about an animal perhaps feeling anxious Mm. um, or suspicious uh, because they were considered anthropomorphic terms. So that was throwing human feelings and emotions onto an animal when you didn't have the evidence that the animal was feeling that. Now I think we're, we're coming back a little bit the other way where we can say, okay, well, maybe that's true, but at the same time is the neurochemistry is the same if the behavior we're seeing, we can draw analogs to with human behavior. We can probably infer that that animal is feeling anxious, that um, it may be suspicious of a stranger and, and be able to comment a bit more in that regard. And also that's where I guess the fact that animal welfare science has been able to show us that, you know, if you tickle rats, they, they laugh and, and that they can experience positive emotions and, you know, happiness is something we can talk about in relation to animals now, which again, 20 years ago, um, would have been very unlikely to find anyone in a research setting using that kind of language.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And but, but something
0: I, that I wanted to come back to, I guess, with you were also yeah. talking about, um, you know, is animal welfare science actually about animal welfare or is it about productivity? And I think that's yes. a really excellent comment. Um, and I think perhaps, again, it, it reflects a little bit on the situation that scientists have probably found themselves in, where, where are the funding opportunities when you're interested in working in this space? And, and who gets to decide what projects are being asked and explored. And I I think it's, you know, it's not always been black and white. There's a lot of gray in this area. And often um, one of the best arguments for making improvements in animal welfare has been, if you can tie it to productivity or performance gains, Mm. because then industry is much more likely to pay attention. I think that's changing now as we learn more about our responsibility to animals as sentient beings, Um, but I think it's also naive to think that there won't always be a place for arguments that can be catched in terms of economics or performance or productivity when you're talking about these large industries that, that use animals.
1: Maybe, maybe not necessarily naive, but hopeful, perhaps. Well, I suppose. Oh, for if, sure, if, if, for
0: sure. Yeah. Look, and I don't, you know. I mean, you. I hope you know me well enough to know yeah, that yeah, I'm no, not.
1: Yeah, I do, I do. I
0: do. <laughs> I'm not discounting that at all. But I, I feel like um, you can't ignore those aspects as well, because they, they can affect really great change as well. Using those arguments can be really powerful
1: yeah yeah there's there's it's interesting it's an interesting um, sort of area in critical animal studies that sort of explored and opened up in the last 10 years is this idea of, of welfareism versus mm. um, more of a, a a liberation or a rights perspective and and how much it actually does um, benefit or not and there's a lot of theoretical stuff that maybe we can explore in another another episode that could um, we could dig down into that um, but I wanted to I wanted to sort of get on to a different topic and it's sort of um, it's related obviously it's um, and it's something that we you mentioned to me you showed you, you sent me through a um, paper recently
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: about um, the welfare of um, guardian dogs, and guardian dogs are, are dogs that might be with um, um, farmed animals to protect them from other wild predators to stop them mm-hmm. from being mm-hmm. killed and whatnot. Um, and they were, they were sort of suggesting that these guardian dogs, um, it's worse to have guardian dogs than maybe use 1080 poison. Mm. And I, I was wondering how, like, welfare science, it, that was based on a welfare science approach, I suppose. How, do, how are they sort of making these, um, these judgments? How are they getting to that point?
0: Yeah, so good question. Uh, again, you're very good at good questions, Adam. Um, <laughs> what I, uh, I guess in the absence of evidence, so where we don't have, you know, stress monitoring on, say, foxes or dingoes, Uh, that are living around. And when I say stress monitoring, that would be things like looking at the physiology. So you might look at stress hormones in feces Mm. um, or you might look at behaviour patterns to see whether when a livestock guardian dog is introduced, say, to a herd of sheep, um, whether that then changes the behaviour patterns of these wild predators. Mm. So whether a dingo is then less likely to approach those sheep whether it then changes its home zone, like in the absence of that kind of information, um, then we have to come up with models to assess welfare. And that's basically uh, what this paper tried to do. The degree of success to which they achieved it, I think is debatable, uh, depending on who you speak <laughs> to. <laughs> I'm gonna try and be really diplomatic. Yep, um, yep. But basically there's been a framework that's been developed for you particularly with wildlife where we may not have access to the evidence base where we make an assessment based on duration of a welfare impact and intensity of a welfare impact and basically map that out so you mm-hmm. might say that 1080 poison has a duration of you know x a number of hours and very intense impact on welfare, obviously the animal ends up dead uh, if they've ingested a, a lethal dose, um, which to me, even, I mean, even death in animal welfare science is really interesting and in how the perception of that has changed yeah. over the last 10 or 20 years as well, because it used to be believed well, if something's dead, it no longer has a welfare, it's no longer suffering, it yep. becomes a moot point but now we look at death as the absence of the opportunity for positive experiences. And so Mm. now it's different. Um, And that gets really messy in, in um, situations where you've got captive populations. So, I mean, I'm sure you'd be aware of, you know, examples like zoo populations where they're trying to balance the welfare uh, opportunities through animals being able to bear young and uh, perhaps engage in maternal caregiving and social opportunities that come through that with then having animals that are surplus to what can be cared for appropriately or is needed within breeding programs around the world and things like that. And so, um, you know, there's been a lot of media again around zoo animals being culled that are surplus to needs. But then when you look at, try and we'll balance that, well, what is the better or worse welfare experience? And there's multiple parties involved in terms of the different animals. And it's, um, again, it, it gets into messy, mushy shades of grey and it's not always clear cut and simple. And that's why I, I really love this area of animal welfare science because it does really hurt my head and it, it does make it hard to know quite clearly what is right. And, and mm. uh, I know there's a large amount of people who'd argue, well, we shouldn't have animals in zoos. And I understand that argument and that perspective, absolutely. But I also come from a very realist perspective. Well, we do have animals in zoos now. So what is the right thing to do with those? What is the best that we can do by those animals that are in those zoos right now so that mm. they can be living their best, best lives in those conditions?
1: Mm. It, takes a, it, it sounds like it's a very utilitarian um sort of approach to to welfare is it is 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 that is that sort of the I, fundamental yeah, look, I think I think it
0: depends on the individual well, who you're uh, talking to yeah. <laughs> so i mean I, and i think in a way i think that's really good i think both within the scientific community and um the industry groups as well there's a variety of perspectives uh, and mostly i'd say they all get heard so i i think that that's good i think there's diversity um But yeah, coming back to the livestock guardian dogs, basically in this paper, they were trying to use that sort of model of intensity to suggest that perhaps living around livestock guardian dogs over a longer period, even though it may be a lower impact welfare, could potentially be more detrimental to the wild dogs or dingoes than 1080
1: (laughs) So That's interesting. But
0: how do you, what's your take on that, Adam? Uh,
1: I, I would say that um, in life, there are, are uncomfortable things that occur. Like I might not like my neighbour and it might, you know, have a small impact on me, but we, we, we and again, anthropomorphising po- possibly, but we can, we can tend to sort of get over those things or get used to them with routine and whatnot. And, but like dying from. A,
0: you don't think you need to kill them.
1: Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, I don't know. It sounds like a little bit of a, a, a stretch. I think. Yeah. But I, I also, I also sort of come from the perspective that we're probably building a rod for our own back. By if we just got rid of livestock, we wouldn't have to worry about um, the the ethics of the <laughs> the welfare of the yeah, guardian dogs not, and the
0: I think that's a really valid point that wasn't considered in that paper.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, this has been a fantastic and I, can I just get like a one minute response from you on how should we be looking out for our um, companion dogs during lockdown um, mm. at the moment? So not every dog is going to be happy that their, their family's home. Some will be extra happy. Like how do we... Um, no, we don't have mm.
0: Yeah, it's true. So, um, we know that in situations like this that the incidence of dogs... Um, biting people, and particularly kids, goes up. Um, it's similar to the, the way that domestic violence incidents increases in these sort of situations mm-hmm. as well. Um, so in terms of what people can do, I would say uh, look out for your animals in terms of giving them the opportunity to retreat if they need. Uh, if you have small children, so children that are under school age and aren't able to necessarily recognise the behaviours or understand that their animals might want alone time, then use physical... <laughs> barriers to protect the animals, things like toddler gates or providing rooms where the animals can go and retreat and have their own private space when they need it um, can be really valuable. Um, and I, I guess just giving your animals choices. If they're used to spending lots of time alone while you're at work uh, and you're currently home full time, then I would suggest still trying to implement a degree of that independence for the animal so that they're not going to suffer from separation anxiety when your routine returns to normal, whether that's in 12 months' time or two years' time. Um, I think there's gonna be a a large incidence of of canine separation anxiety when people suddenly go back to normal Mm. um, because they've got used to having their people around them all the time. So if your dog is used to being physically separated from you for a large part of the day, then I would suggest trying to maintain some semblance of that. Um, Making sure that you all get some sort of physical activity and outlet as well. Um, is important for everyone's good mental health. Um, And, yeah, I think that's amazing. Just giving your animals choices is really, really important. So if that's the choice to engage with you or not uh, and trying to maintain, I guess, a routine that you see being sustainable into the future as well so that then they're not going to be left in the lurch down the track.
1: Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us today, Mia. And and I must say to all the listeners out there, Mia's been really awesome because she only, um, I only asked yesterday <laughs> whether she'd be able to do the interview and she's just been great and really helped out. So thanks so much, Mia. We really appreciate it. a
0: pleasure. It. I'm really glad that we got around to doing this because we've talked about it for a while, so it's lovely
1: yeah and uh stay tuned for Encycledelia after um after this so you've been listening to freedom of species we'll be back next week on sunday from 1 p.m catch us here every sunday and uh, encyclopedia up next
3: Hello, my name's Nick. I present a show on 3CR on Sundays at 2pm called In Psychedelia, where we focus on drug culture, drug policy uh, and drug issues. It's been a bit of a strange time because I uh, also work in the harm reduction sector, specifically going to festivals and parties. So all of our work quickly dried up with covid-19 but one of the questions that i suppose the festival community in particular has been asking is how do we remain connected because it is a community and i think that's the the first reason <laughs> that people come to these events the music is there the art is there all of these things are aspects to it but it's really about the people who are coming and bringing those things and sharing those things and i've seen some innovation online and i think that's something that I hope to see more of, more use of innovative technological solutions to connect community, to help creatives reach wider audiences and really build something together. I hope that you're finding ways to remain connected to your community during these odd times. 3CR is a good way to do it, so keep listening. You've been listening to a
0: 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.